0: This is A Diet of Brussels. Uh, Today we've got uh, an interview with a historian. We haven't done that before, and actually I don't think I've ever heard anyone interview a historian. Uh, This is uh, Helena uh, Bismarck, who is a German historian and writer, whose specialization has been on British foreign policy, She's also done uh, an awful lot of commentating uh, in Germany, but actually even more here in the UK. Um, And uh, I thought it'd be interesting to get some uh, different perspective from her about uh, where we are on uh, the Brexit process. Um, You can follow uh, Helena on Twitter, uh, Helena Bismarck, um, and uh, she's very worthwhile uh, to uh, be following. Uh, she makes some useful recommendations at the end of the podcast uh, of things you might read that might cast some historical light. And uh, we've been talking on Skype, so uh, I hope that the uh, the volumes work for you. Uh, anyway, here she is uh, talking about Brexit. So I, one of the things I was really interested to, to talk with you about is what's a historian Doing, being interested in stuff that's happening now?
1: Well, this is really a fascinating moment, and I would say a turning point in um, British history. My research interest has always been Britain's sort of role in world history and its foreign policy. And I started off with my PhD working on decolonization and the history of imperialism. And now, with my second book, or the second book that I'm now working on. I'm uh, working on the question of Britain's relationship with the EU in the 1980s, to be precise. And um, at the moment, what we're seeing with Brexit is really how Britain has to sort of reposition itself, reinvent itself on the world stage, or at least that's what um, the Brexiteers are trying to do. So it is just fascinating to see how this will play out.
0: So uh, with that in mind, uh, a whole series of questions uh, invite themselves. I, the first one is, is Brexit an a, an aberration or is it more of the same? I you know how how in keeping with the his, historical record is it?
1: Well, if you talk about uh, aberrations, um, I'm going to sound very much like a story now. Um, you assume that there is some kind of normality, a normal course of history, and I would dispute that. So. I'm not sure that's the right question to ask. I, I guess what, what's certainly interesting is how history has been instrumentalized and used by different factions in the Brexit debate. So the Brexiteers like to claim that Britain is, has always been some sort of different from the European continent, and that Brexit is just a natural sort of process and culmination of a British history which is different from that of the continent. Um, This is essentially the argument of British exceptionalism. Uh, Britain, or rather the the United Kingdom, has always been different from the continent. This started with the Reformation um, with Henry VIII breaking with Catholicism and um, it was always absurd to think that Britain could ever be part of the European Union. That's an Brexiteer argument and it's an exceptionalist one. Um, I would that argument very much as a historian because I think that those who claim that Britain has always been different from the continent usually base this assumption on a very limited knowledge um, on the history of the continent. They just lump in together the experiences and histories of 27 countries and say, look, these are all the same and we are different from all of them. But The reasons they give focus on British history without much knowledge uh, about um, continental history. To give you an example, uh, much has been made of the question that Britain has this imperial history. And uh, this has been used in the Brexit debate both with positive and with negative connotations. Brexiteers like to to dream of a global Britain and like to stress how many links Britain has with. countries beyond Europe, so with, with the Commonwealth, with Canada, with India. And um, they like to claim that um, given Britain's history, it would be more natural for Britain to, to be a world player and not being sort of tied down by the EU. Now, the same argument has been used negatively by those who oppose Brexit. They say this is an imperialist fantasy, um, which also sort of glosses over the negative aspects of imperialism. Um, and they have criticized the Brexiteers for that. But what I would say is that it's odd to claim that Britain as an ex-empire is ill-suited to be a member of the EU because if you look at the history of EU member states, you look at Spanish history, Portuguese history, French history, German history, Dutch history, what you find is the history of empires. So having been an empire doesn't mean that you can't be a member of the EU. It makes no sense.
0: So the, the question that arises is, why does the, the UK have this, this different view? Is it because of the, the colonial experience or the image of the colonial experience? Is it something else? Uh, you know, in the other obvious area is uh, the experience of the Second World War.
1: Well, there are different histor- uh, historical experiences that all probably play into this. It's the experience of the Empire and of uh, the Second World War which was uh, a very different experience for the British than it was for most um, uh, European continental European countries. Um, Britain was never conquered and uh, never occupied, um, and uh, the, its political institutions survived uh, the Second World War. And um, so it is natural that the EU um, argument that European integration is a peace project a project designed to guarantee peace on this continent. It, it's logical that this argument would hold less weight in Britain than it would in, for example, France.
0: But clearly, that mm-hmm. I can see that in the sense of uh, the the French experience of the war, of occupation, of uh, the material destruction, is is, mm-hmm. is different from the the British one. And yet, the British one was still one of. Uh, intense uh, mobilization total war of uh, a huge loss of life uh, that you know the, the the costs of having to intervene and be part of uh, the European system mm. wh- why then didn't that translate into well you know it's not that we were saying the war was fun uh, you know war is a, a terrible thing so so why did that not catch in the, in the same kind of way
1: well, and that's that's precisely it. I mean, the the, uh, the Second World War was, of course, and I didn't mean at all to diminish that a, yeah. a, a terrible experience uh, for the British, but I think there is a great sense of pride, and to a certain extent rightly so, um, to the British contribution during the Second World in fighting uh, uh, in fighting Nazi Germany. And I would just like, as a German, to put on record that I am very grateful for what Britain did during the Second World War. Um, so, but I think this, this, uh, there is this tradition in British political discourse to only look back at the things that make you proud about the Second World War, and, um, and also to some kind of, well, it's almost, well, uh, also to a certain extent, a pride in how much the British suffered and, and endured. And to interpret the, the sufferance as a sign of how, um, how strong Um, Britain is. I mean, that's what you hear from Brexiteers now. Um, We didn't uh, live through the war to now be bullied by the EU. Uh, We didn't endure all that and stand alone uh, against the Nazis to now be bullied by Europe. These are arguments which you hear from Brexiteers all the time. Um, So, uh, uh, it's a a selective um, memory of the Second World War. I also think we shouldn't underestimate that there is a huge difference between the arguments which are being put forward now and the general feeling about uh, European integration um, over the last few decades. I mean, it is true, it's a fact that Euroscepticism is deeply rooted in Britain. Then again, um, it wasn't such a big issue um, until a few years before the referendum, yes, there were was a considerable amount of people who didn't like European integration, who were concerned about British sovereignty, but comparing that to other issues which also matter to people and to voters, such as, I don't know, social care or schools or foreign policy, um, it wasn't a top issue and, and it was made top issue by the decision to, to hold a referendum. So That's, I think, a huge problem now with the whole Brexit debate, is that um, those leading it claim to represent the people, uh, the majority, uh, the voters, uh, or or the simple people or something, uh, the ordinary people. Um, But really, they are just putting their own words into the mouth of of 70.4 million uh, Leave voters, because I'm absolutely convinced that uh, 70, 0.4 0.4 million voters did not vote for a no-deal Brexit, and um, uh, and now it's been presented as if a complete cut from Europe is the only true Brexit, and that's just a distortion of the truth, and it's also a distortion of the things that have been promised during the referendum.
0: Uh, that's... Uh clearly uh, the case and you know and kind of you know it's one of the things that for me is very interesting is the way that you can recast and reframe uh events and uh actions in a way that suits your own agenda and sort of this kind of rarefication of the people as the only legitimate source of authority which you know in a British context has that particular complication that it's a system based on parliamentary sovereignty Um, uh, so in formal terms you're in a different place from uh, the kind of popular sovereignty that that you have in in pretty much every other uh, state Uh, does this invite historical parallels to you or is this you know, is history helpful in, in this Debate in making sense of it. Well, um, I
1: think I know what you're
0: getting at. Well, (laughs) no, but it's because I I wasn't actually trying to get at anything. It was a more generic question than is this like X? uh uh and i i think listeners should also know that they have you to thank for for sparing me pining on how this is like the french revolution uh, <laughs> uh for which i think everyone should be grateful uh especially me um so i yeah so i wasn't i gonna i was not asking you to say is this like uh, uh this or like that it's, it's more just you know there's always that danger that people fall back onto tropes and to images uh, and often as you know you've already set out so the importance of some historical uh, reference points Um, but you know is that is that a useful thing to do does it speak to something uh, essential essential and truthful or is it always a political device that uh, suits your your specific needs at at a given point in time
1: Well, as a historian, I'd argue that history is always helpful. I, um, okay, let's just address the elephant in the room. Um, There have been quite a lot of people recently who have compared the situation in Britain and the kind of debate we're, we're having in Britain to Weimar Germany. I have been always been very careful with this comparison. Uh, for two reasons, because one, for a long time, I didn't think it was an appropriate comparison to make, Uh, and secondly, I also thought that this comparison would immediately, even if you used it in a reasonable way, um, would immediately be picked up by the other side, as saying, oh, you're comparing us to Hitler, how dare you, Um, and it would just uh, cause a huge row, and it wouldn't be useful in bringing the debate forward. Uh, which is why I've been very careful with these kinds of comparisons. What I would say is that we are seeing now in the UK a period of extreme political polarization. And I think that this is a very dangerous thing. And I also think that it is very useful to look at the experiences of other countries and of other periods in time to see what this could lead to. one example is um and just because i've never publicly sort of used um a comparison to to sort of weimar germany it doesn't mean i've never thought about it or it's never crossed my mind i've just been careful of how to to phrase this um there is a book which is very um had a huge influence in in germany um a book by sebastian hafner he was a journalist who fled, uh, who emigrated from Germany to Britain in the early 30s, and um, he didn't emigrate because he was persecuted in any way or because he was Jewish, he just was appalled by, by the incoming Nazi regime, and he became a very influential um, uh, journalist in, uh, and writer in Germany after the Second World War, but he lived he lived his life in Britain. And he um, wrote, in the 30s, he wrote a memoir of his experience as a very young man of the 20s in Germany. And the, so not the, the time of Nazi rule, but the, the years before, the decade before. And this is really a book about how individuals struggle um, when you're neither very left-wing nor very right-wing, You don't want to, because you are appalled by by some of the right-wing rhetoric that you're witnessing, it doesn't turn you into a communist, it doesn't turn you into someone who wants to join the other side. So you're sort of left in the middle, and it's this abandoned centre in politics. And and you're really devoid of a political home. And I think the circumstances being, of course, very different, but this problem of the centre being politically homeless is a problem we're seeing in Britain at the moment, and um, and the British voting system actually compounds that problem, because there are parties who are sort of um, more in the centre ground of politics than the Corbyn's Labour Party or Johnson's Tory party, but with the first past the poll system, um, it's almost like your vote is wasted if you um, vote for, for one of these more centrist Parties,
0: and I think that is a real problem but beyond that, I'd say I, I think you know that is a useful kind of aspect to, to think about, but again the, as you say, the danger always is is you start to you pick on one historical reference point and then you're you're accused of saying that everything is like this this is just exactly. like that's the problem yeah um. How does one counter that?
1: Well, I mean, the only, thing, uh, the only thing you can do is just to stay reasonable and stay calm and stay polite. Uh, and um, just uh, try to explain your point of view and really pull yourself together and not use Brexit to get whatever message you've always wanted to deliver, across. And I think that's also a problem of the debate right now. It's being instrumentalised and weaponised by all sorts of political factions. And um, so people start with saying something about Brexit, but then they continue by making a point about politics, for example. I mean, uh, the uh, parts of the Labour Party might use it to say that something about inequality or austerity and so on. And while I don't debate that these are important issues, it sort of disqualifies their argument about Brexit to a certain extent, because um, those who are of a different opinion can always ignore the bit about Brexit, the reasonable part of the argument, and just attack you for what else you've said. So if I say, you know, having read lots and lots of books and memoirs about uh, Weimar Germany, and as a German, you know, you ask yourself these questions, how can this happen? What would I have done? But if I say that, that the answer is probably going to be, how dare you compare us to the the Nazis, which I'm not doing,
0: you know? Um, I suppose, just as a slight detour on that, as as you were saying, you you do a lot of uh, media uh, work, public engagement. How do you as an individual uh, cope with and manage uh, that kind of difficult debate. And I know you've had a lot of uh, difficult discussions that I've seen uh, online. Uh, how do you, as, as a person, cope with that?
1: Well, I sort of have this uh, rule that I try not to, whenever somebody gets rude, I just don't reply. And I, so instead of, you know, shooting people down for, for their comments, I just ignore them. You know your parents tell you to ignore people who bully you and you never do it but twitter's really taught me that <laughs> and uh, because i've really found that when you ignore people they they're more likely to go away than if you start fighting with them publicly um it's not i mean it takes a it, it takes a certain toll i'm not going, going to lie and i also think me being german and having a let's say conspicuously german last name mm-hmm. <laughs> um, obviously invites some kinds of comments and uh, I can't say that I enjoy them very much and I also sometimes I have moments when I ask myself should I just be quiet, I'm not British, do I even have a right to to comment on these things and then I think hang on I'm an expert, I'm in story and I've spent the last 15 years um, researching uh, British history and trying to understand it and, and I spend much more time reading British books and listening to British programs and then I do German and what people are asking me about is my expertise and people really shouldn't be defined by um, their nationality or where they come from and that again is a huge problem in the Brexit debate, how everything is partisan now even if it isn't so people say make an argument and then the other side says, you're only saying that because you're a Remainer um, or you're only saying that because you're a Tory or something. And that's really not helpful in in moving the discussion uh, uh, along, always assuming that the point of having a discussion is actually everybody sort of might learn something from it or or might benefit from it. Uh, um, You know, Hannah Arendt, uh, there's this famous quote um, from Hannah Arendt where she said that uh, the most dangerous political situation is when people think there is no longer such a thing as an objective truth. And I think this is a situation we're very close to in bridge debate at this point. Everything is interpreted as just being a, a partisan, a ploy, uh, an argument. It's like there are no facts anymore. And, uh, you know, you have jo- journalists, and you also have that in, in interviews. You, a politician says something and then the journalist replies, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Well, they're probably right, he or she would, but how are you ever going to get any kind of information out of that conversation if you just start off on the assumption that this person is not really telling the truth but just pending an agenda? And what I find really worrying about the British discourse is um, how this denial of an objective truth now extends, to, in some quarters, to a denial of... of really or certain content showing for the rule of law. You know, the Supreme Court makes a ruling that the, the, the prorogation was unlawful, and you have plenty of people saying, well, uh, the Remainers um, broke convention first, so it's fair game, and anyway, the judges are biased, and they're part of the elite. I mean, if you don't have some kind of basic consensus that there is some, such a thing as a objective facts and it's the job of experts to provide them. And if you don't also accept that the rule of law must be paramount in any civilised society and that you have to trust in the institutions that guarantee them, like the Supreme Court, then I think in a democracy you are in really real trouble or you could get into real trouble.
0: Okay, I think those are all reasonable... Uh, points, uh, even if uh, other people might not take them as uh, reasonable, um, and if we dip back into the historical record, let's think not about you know the, the the problems of the situation. Let's think about pathways out of it, because clearly one of the uh, real difficulties that the UK faces, and actually the EU faces too, is you know how do you get how do you move on from this situation? How do you uh, get yourself out of the, the corner into which you, you, you have painted yourself and been painted by others? Um, do you see examples of kind of a reconstruction of national debate, of working through a, a, a challenging situation like this in a way that is ultimately constructive?
1: OK, after that long pause, I have thought of an example. Uh, during the uh, of a positive um, contribution to the debate, and I think a constructive way forward, uh, during the Tory leadership contest, Rory Stewart, um, with whom, whom I don't agree on everything, just to make that clear, but um, he gave a speech in a circus tent, I believe, in which he pitched his ideas for, for the future, not just Brexit, but also British politics. And he said that there is a real problem, uh, that there is a lack of seriousness and a lack of shame in the political debate. And I would absolutely agree with that. And looking at the prime minister now, I mean, anybody with a set basic sense of shame or decency would have resigned the moment the Supreme Court judgment came in. That's just my opinion, but um, it's just extraordinary from abroad to watch a Prime Minister of a country trying to suspend parliamentary scrutiny, and then uh, the highest court in the land ruling that this is um, unlawful, and him not resigning. It's just an extraordinary thing to observe. So, um, and what Rory Stewart said about that we need um, more acknowledgement of how serious uh, these problems are, I thought that was a very important point to make. That said, I'm not entirely convinced with Rory uh, Stewart's Stuart, uh, uh, position um, of how to get out of the uh, of Brexit. He says that there needs to com- compromise, needs to be struck. And why, while I really like this in theory, I don't really see, see where this compromise is going to come from. So...
0: Okay, and I guess one pathway for that would be, some people would argue, would be another referendum.
1: Yes, well, I've been on the fence about this referendum question for a very long time, unlike many people in in Germany, uh, by the way, because I, just as a rule, I'm a huge friend of the representative part of a representative democracy, and I don't like referendums per se. And for a long time I thought that, the vote having turned out as it did i don't like the result but that's my problem um there really is no option but to implement the result of the referendum and i was also very worried having observed the the really vile kind of discourse during the referendum and after um how polarizing another one would be um so there for a very long time i was really no friend of the the idea of having a second referendum at the moment we've really come to a point where I think that the two options are no deal or another referendum. I don't I don't see what else could happen. I'm, I'm, uh, because the suggestions now being put forward, I mean, we're recording this on Wednesday morning and the Prime Minister is about to make his statement at the tutorial conference about his ultimate offer to the EU for a deal, but parts of this have already been leaked and discussed in the press and it looks utterly unrealistic to me, and not just unrealistic, but it looks to me as if this isn't a real offer, as if this is just um, pretense to to run down the clock. Um, So I don't think, and even if by some miracle, uh, Johnson and the EU agreed to a deal now, um, then it would still have to get through Parliament. And the only way this could happen would be if part of the opposition voted. For it. With everything that has happened over the last months, with uh, with prorogation, with uh, the debate about language and Johnson's comments about uh, about Joe Cox, there I, I just can't see a way in which enough opposition MPs would vote for anything he put in front of them. So, um, which really means either we have no deal, possibly not on thirty first of October, because. The government is bound by the Bennett, even though they say they don't really care about that. Um, but ultimately, either there is a crash out or there has to be another vote deciding on the way forward. I don't see what else could have possibly happen.
0: And do you think that that referendum will settle things? I mean, you, you, you talked about the concerns about you know the divisiveness of it uh, the other issues surrounding it and certainly i would share those concerns it might be the the only way to to kind of have another stage in the debate but to me it still looks as though it, it doesn't actually solve anything in the in the the larger sense of the of the debate. yeah
1: well quite i i agree i mean um if there is another referendum, I have no idea how it will turn out. There is a possibility that Remain will want a win, but it's by no means certain in my opinion. But let's assume they win. Then the problem with the EU is solved, although there is um, obviously a catastrophic lack of trust and goodwill um, as a result of the last uh, a few years of negotiating and, uh, and, and debating Brexit. Um, but the larger political issue in, in Britain remains, as you say, um, very acute. So, But the thing is, the polarising debate will go on no matter what happens with Brexit. I would say that Britain is actually, it's, it's not one crisis, there are two crises in Britain at the moment. One is the Brexit crisis, and one is the larger issue of the sort of eroding trust in Britain's um, institutions, uh, the rise of populist rhetoric, and... Uh, uh, polarization of, of politics. And that political crisis in itself will not just magically go away the moment Brexit is resolved either by um, voting again and, and deciding to remain or even if there is a no-deal Brexit or even a deal Brexit. These political problems in, in Britain will continue and why, while leaving uh, with or without a deal might calm a few people I think it's highly unlikely that those very loud voices who have expressed real contempt for parliament for the judiciary um those voices won't, won't go away and i also think that the strongest remain of voices those who really oppose to brexit won't be satisfied uh, the moment there is another referendum i mean they would have no choice but to accept another leave vote in the short term but um the bitterness and um, and that will go away. Still, I think that there is a huge divisive issue in uh, in Britain right now, which is Brexit. And one way to not solve everything, we're far far away from perfect outcomes. It's just damage limitation, what anybody can do right now, is to have another vote uh, on it. Um, but one shouldn't just fool oneself that by some kind of magic trick, no matter what it is, the problems will just go away and people will just move on to other things. One advantage of leaving with a deal, which is very unlikely, but just for argument's sake, would be that it might calm down the debate a bit, take the bit away from the front pages. There will still be years and years of negotiations um, about the future relationship between uh, the UK and um, and the EU, but they may be a little less politicised than they are right now. But that's just the outcome of a Brexit with a deal, which at the moment looks very unlikely to me. If there is a No Deal, that is just the biggest lie of of the extreme um, Brexiters to call that a clean Brexit. There is nothing clean about No Deal. You can't just wish, for, you know, more than four decades or close cooperation in in relations with your closest geographical neighbours and also your allies away and pretend that the United Kingdom is just going to swim away or something. I mean, we're still neighbours. We have to reorganise our relationships. So a clean Brexit really is a huge mess, which will result in years and years and years um, of uh, more negotiations and probably a lot of bitterness on all sides.
0: Sounds... uh... Delightful.
1: I'm not painting a very optimistic picture. I know.
0: No, but uh, <laughs> well, it's nice to to, to, to misery loves company. Uh, so uh, I I'm similarly pessimistic about the 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 longer run uh, course of things. Um. Yes. Let us come back to history. I mean, does does history tell us that things work out in the end or does it tell no. us that nothing is certain and nothing lasts and we we it's in our hands or or what
1: well history tells us that things aren't as black and white as most people engaged in the political debate about Brexit would have you think um uh that there is just this absolutism in debate now, which is when you look at the history of Britain and also of the European Union, is complete nonsense. I mean, those who dislike the European Union uh, um, you know, criticise it as this horrible uh, super state um, eating up uh, the sovereignty of its members um, those who want Britain to remain, not all of them, but some of them, paint it as this wonderful, perfect creation um, and if you try to sort of provide a more nuanced view of the history of European integration and of Britain's role in it, uh, you'll very quickly get attacked by both sides. Or oh, how can you say that in the current climate it will only feed into uh, you know, the argument of the other side? And that's a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this just gets worse and worse because then people who just want to you know, provide a balanced picture and who just want to pro- provide the facts no matter whether anybody likes them, um, are actively discouraged in, uh, in giving their views. I remember um, like months ago I quoted something um, on Twitter which I had just come across um, in my reading about the European Union, which is that um, the Falklands War was the first time in the history of European integration that the European Council um, agreed on sanctions on a third nation to support Britain's so, sanctions against uh, Argentina. That's just a fact, you know? It's not a positive or negative fact. I wasn't making an argument. I just put put this fact on Twitter, and I got really vile responses. Uh, Oh, yes, but uh, then they did something horrible. Um, I don't know. It's just, how can you say that? So clearly, people were really annoyed with the fact somebody would, you know, use their platform to point out a fact which doesn't play into their narrative yeah um, well just ge- or just generally on your point what does history tell us well um i think what history tells us and that brings us back to the question of democracy and the political crisis it does tell us that the most moderate um, voices are those which are most likely to be drowned out in a period of, you know, heated debate. And it also tells you that you shouldn't really wait until things have become really bad, until you speak up or or do something. Um, But that's just a a general point to make. Um, I would say that looking at the history of Britain's um, relationship with the European Union, there is a tendency to completely overlook um, the bene- not just the benefits that Britain has received um, from membership, but also the, the, the breakthroughs and the successes Britain has had in um, uh, safeguarding its own interests within the EU. Um, people like to remember about you know the history of um, Britain's relation with the EU, the, you know, the rouse, the, the publicity, the, uh, the angry rhetoric, they, they think of Margaret Thatcher standing in the House of Commons and shouting no, no, no to somebody who wasn't even there, Jacques Delors, who was fans for the European mm-hmm. Union. They don't like to remember the fact that Margaret Thatcher was a huge um, supporter of the single market and that she made considerable concessions to see it come about. People also don't like to remember that it was a a British politician, Lord Cofield, who was sent by Thatcher personal appointment, which she had to defend against some of her political allies. He was sent to Brussels to write the programme for the single market, and he did a very impressive uh, job of it. So people tend to uh, sort of gloss over anything that um, Britain has succeeded in during its membership in the European Union, and just focus on Uh, the times when it didn't get its way. So I think what's sorely needed is a more nuanced sort of um, view of Britain's role in the European integration process. I also think that this whole situation calls for, uh, I mean, or just reinforces the need for, you know, I know you're a political scientist, I'm a historian, it's an old um, sort of, you know, uh, love-hate relationship, but um, so much of the literature about European integration is written by political scientists and now with' more and more you know people writing the history of European integration and I think that's very important because I'm very much a supporter of European integration personally but that does not mean that I think it's right to um, just tell this as a, an uninterrupted, unproblematic, uh, one-dimensional success story you know you need to have you need to stop romanticizing it you need to uh, look soberly at the fact and the, also the periods of more integration and less integration at the fact that other European member states have also always protected their national interests. it's not <laughs> like just Britain has been doing this hmm. so um, and what I also think as a historian and well it's basically what I'm doing but the more I think about Brexit, the more I think it's necessary to to look at the experiences of other European member states and to to have a comparative perspective between the British experiences and that of other member states. Because as long as we just focus on British history with a bit of you know Europe thrown in, and as long as we just treat uh, the European continent as some ca- kind of monolith. Um, we're not going to get to the bottom of how complex um, this relationship really is, and we're also not going to really understand whether or not Britain really is that different or not. I mean, if you want to, um, you know, if you want to question exceptionalism, you have to stop being an exceptionalist. You have to stop just focusing on Britain. You have to put British experience into the context of the wider uh, European experience, and then see whether that holds up or not.
0: Sounds, uh, perfectly reasonable. Uh, (laughs) uh, just as a a closing thought, if people wanted to, to read something that might kind of illustrate these ideas and thoughts and kind of stimulate their own thinking, uh, you've mentioned, uh, Hafner, is there anyone else that you would recommend people read?
1: Well, somebody I would very much recommend is uh, Piers Ludlow, who's a British historian. I think he's at the LSE, and he is, I would say, the best and most uh, respected, or at least by me, historian of European integration and Britain's role in it. Uh, So his writings, he's not on Twitter, sadly, Um, his writings are very much worth reading. He just published a short article about the awkward partner narrative, about this idea that Britain has always been the problem within the European uh, integration process, and he explains why that is actually not true. So anything by written by him, I would very much recommend. Um, I also would say that people should really inform themselves about the history of European integration and about the EU, and I, I'm not trying to advertise for any political opinion, I just say that if you want to have an opinion, it better be based on facts. So, um, And it's really quite shocking how little some people seem to know people with very loud opinions about the reality of European integration. There is a new book by Kiran Klaus-Patel about the history of Europe, although I'm not sure it's been translated into English yet. I'd have to check. Um, But he has published a lot in English, so uh, it would be worth uh, Googling and seeing what what else he's written. Um, And yes, well, just writing about this question of Populism and the rise of um, extreme positions and 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 loud voices drowning out um, the center. I would recommend anything by Hafner, but I would also really recommend um, that people read or reread Hannah Arendt's *The Origins of Totalitarianism*. T-
0: okay, that's uh, a good reading list. I also can recommend you on uh, Twitter, Helena Bismarck. Uh, Is somebody to follow for listeners. Elaine, thank you very much for your time and for the discussion. And uh, thank you.
1: Thank you, Tim.